The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Well, good morning. My name is Darren Smith, senior pastor here at Tower View Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Our website is towerviewkc.com. Again, towerviewkc.com. Thank you so much for joining us. On behalf of our staff uh, here at Tower View, Happy New Year to you and our church. Uh, If you're a regular viewer, uh, especially a member, you're familiar with us, but if you're watching for the first time, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, this this week, and and basically through mid-March, we're going to be doing a study of the historical book of Nehemiah. We've never done a study of historical books in my time here over the last five or six years. And, and the purpose of our study is to remind ourselves uh, of the gospel and what Christ has done, but also to see in a time very similar to what we're seeing right now uh, as this is being recorded at the beginning of the new year, as, as we're looking around the world, where they are rebuilding. And that's not the purpose. We're not here to give principles of leadership or how to have a church uh, building campaign or those sorts of things. Those there are principles throughout the book. But the purpose of Nehemiah and what we're going to look at is to see how they were being rebuilt spiritually especially. We'll see the physical side, but more importantly, God was churning within them a desire for him and a burning desire for him and a restoration spiritually as many were coming back to rebuild the walls. We'll get to that in a minute. One last little announcement I will say is we we are still here at Tower View having service at 10.30 a.m. We have some inside uh, with masks required per local ordinance. And we have some outside in their cars. And we know these are, uh, especially being in the cars and, 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 and such, these are Band-Aids. They're temporary measures we feel are important to uh, abide by government rules, but also to keep our people safe, among other things. But we do look forward to the day, whenever that is, whenever we feel that's appropriate, by God's grace through prayer and, and all the discussions, to come back together inside. So, Christian, I just encourage you to, to pray for that, uh, we, to be intentional in this new year, to reach out to other members of the church, to reach out to us. Don't just be insular. Don't just be a consuming Christian. Make sure you're being part of the body of Christ where you are, how you can in these days. And in all things, God is God, and he's the Lord of the resurrection. No matter what befalls us, Christ is still king. So thank you for joining us. Let's read our scripture from Nehemiah chapter 1. It's going to take a couple minutes, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into our uh, sermon from there. Nehemiah chapter 1, this sermon series is entitled, The Story of a New Beginning. The Story of a New Beginning, and of course today is part 1. Hear God's word from Nehemiah chapter 1, all the way down to the end of the chapter, going through verse 11. This is what God's word says. It says, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, it happened now in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanai, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I, this is Nehemiah writing in the first person here, asked them concerning the Jews who'd escaped, who survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And verse 3, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard verse 4 of these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the Lord of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, 
the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. Verse 7, Nehemiah continues, he said, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if your, your people are unfaithful, I will scatter them among the nations. But verse 9, if you return to me, keep my commandments and do them. And though your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And verse 10, they are your servants and your people, whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I, again, Nehemiah speaking, was the cupbearer to the king. May God bless the reading of his word. Again, the story of a new beginning as we look through every chapter, about a chapter a week through Nehemiah. Pray this would be encouraging to you in these times we live. May God be glorified. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for our time. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and to be a part of just gathering as we can in these days to worship. We know it's different. Father, we know it looks different, it sounds different, it feels different. But Father, I pray that doesn't hinder our relationship with you. This new year, may we be consumed by your, your presence and your word. May we prayer, spend time in prayer, Father. May we be thankful. May we evangelize. May we disciple. May we do the one another passages of Scripture. Father, even as it is from a distance, you understand. Help us to be faithful how we can. Father, we love you so much. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Well, there's a story told about a little girl that noticed her mother had several strands of white hair sticking out in contrast to her regular brunette head or hair. And she looked at her mother and inquisitively, as a little girl would, asked, Mom, why are some of your hairs white? And her mother sighed for a moment and replied, Well, my daughter, every time you do something wrong and make me cry or make me unhappy or, or generally upset me, one of my hairs turns white. And the little girl thought about this for a minute, and as something an only little girl could say in her insightful years, said this, Mama, how come all grandma's hairs are white then, if that is true? <laughs> Can you imagine what it would be like to be God and have the same thing happen? Like that mom who told her daughter a little fictitious story, but you get the point, Year after year, your people are doing stuff that you have told them otherwise not to do. And you're in heaven, as God is, and if God could have white hairs like this mother, they must be very many, if not completely white. And what a great reminder from 1 John 1, 9, that it tells us that if we confess with our mouths, that, and we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to cleanse us from our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we look and come to the book of Nehemiah, the situation is real. God's people have been humbled and now are in the process of being restored. But things still quite aren't right. Nehemiah on the heels of Zerubbabel uh, in the book of Haggai and Ezra in the, in the book of Ezra, both of whom helped rebuild the temple and bring spiritual life and the law back to Israel, have a mighty job. Nehemiah has this job to rebuild the, the walls of Jerusalem. 
But the trouble is, the son of the sin of God's people is still very great. It is still causing white hairs, as it were. And this is why John Owen, one of those great dead guys, said, He is no true believer in whom sin is the greatest burden, sorrow, in, in whom sin is not the greatest burden, sorrow, and trouble. Look, if you're more irritated by the sin, weakness, and failure of others than you are grieved by your own, you are a person who should be considered in spiritual trouble. But the good news is, is that the God who met you in your sin has loved you, has rescued you, and will not abandon you when momentary trouble comes your way. And so, and Nehemiah led the people to physically rebuild, and they would have to, they would have to confront pesky sins all the way, like those white hairs on that mama's head or a mole in your backyard, because they kept coming up a time and time and time again. But God reminded them, even despite their sin, that he was faithfully walking with them all the way. And so as we open this book, I want to ask you, does your life, do you see your life as utterly ruined as Nehemiah saw his life and his people's lives? I mean, be honest this morning and ask yourself, whose sin causes you more uh, heartburn, causes you more consternation, yours or the sins of others? Uh, because confession is a gift of grace. But the good news is, and the big idea today, is that there's no damage that sin has done that God's grace, which is fully complete in Christ, cannot reach, cannot restore, or cannot rebuild. Look, even despite feeling sorry for the people of Israel, let us remember that sympathy is no substitute for action. Nehemiah's job was not to focus on what was, but what God was calling him to do and calling him to be. And Christian, as we move forward, let us do our best to fight sin while also know that God is reigning and is moving among us as we seek Him, like Nehemiah, in prayer. So in Nehemiah 1, we'll look at two things, two, two easy points to follow this morning, that we'll see two actions to take while serving in the midst of sin covered by God's grace. We're going to consider the situation around us in verses 1 to 4, and we're going to compassionately seek God above us in verses 5 to 11. But a little context before we go. And this, this intro is going to be a little bit longer than usual because we need to set the stage. But this book, Ezra or Nehemiah, was probably part of Ezra at one point. Ezra and Nehemiah were probably part of one book. And there, it breaks down, Nehemiah does, into two sections. There's the rebuilding of the wall, chapters 1 to 7. And then there's the rebuilding of the people, chapters 8 to 13. And Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem about 140, 50-ish years after Jerusalem has fallen. It's about 444 B.C., and it's about 13 years, 13, 15 years, after Ezra, the priest, has come back to restore the spiritual side of people. And, and Nehemiah was a great leader whom God used to pull off a phenomenal feat. He instilled the vision in God's people in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city. They do do it. Spoiler alert, they rebuild the walls, by the way. But in spite of much opposition and numerous hurdles, they did this amazingly in 52 days. Nehemiah was a great leader who pulled off a vision with a phenomenal feat. In fact, he instilled a vision in God's people to rebuild the walls, and he did this in 52 days. That's a crazy amount of construction if you've been to Israel before or seen it, and you know that those uh, things don't just get built overnight. The temple had been rebuilt for about 70 years prior to this. So the last piece physically of this area was literally the walls. And so it was about 444 B.C. Nehemiah is serving under King Artaxerxes in his winter capital in Susa. And Nehemiah had, had knew most of the facts that came before him. But this graphic firsthand description by his brother, 
including the news uh, of things after what has happened, devastated Nehemiah. So he wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed for days, and he's asking God to do something. And that's where we're going to start. As we look at point number one, consider the situation around you. Consider as you live and serve God in the midst of sin covered by grace, you're going to first consider the situation around you. And so he's a good man. Nehemiah's a good man. He's got a good salary with an important job. He worked for the state, but it was not his home state. He's in another state with another leader, and his job is something like a bodyguard for a king. His only responsibilities were mainly in the area of food. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a food taster for the professional life? That's always got to be a cush job. But, but if food was, was bad, uh, if food was drugged, if food was poisoned, he would be the first to die. So it's a great risk. But one day, his brother comes to him, and all of a sudden, all the joys of the good and high-standing community and unique access to the palace don't mean so much anymore. Now, through his access to the palace, God has placed him in a position to intervene. And isn't it amazing how God puts people like that in the right place at the right time to be used by him? The name Nehemiah means comforter, and around 25 years before Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, another Hebrew in Persia was faced with the challenge of making a difference for God's people. You know her name. Her name was Esther. And Esther 4.14 records the challenge of her uncle Mordecai to young Esther, which said, quote, maybe God has raised you up for such a time as this. And as an aside, one of the most overused phrases, perhaps in Baptist life, is such a time as this. So, But it's true that Esther was there, and it's true Nehemiah was there. But their obedience encourages us with the truth that it might, truth that it might also be true for us. And so Nehemiah, like Moses, was fitted beforehand for the work God had appointed him to do. He belonged to the children of captivity, and he was perfect in showing his sympathy for them. And being the king's cupbearer, he had accepted wealth and position and, and all the things that came with royal service. But he also was sad for what had happened, because God prepared him not only socially but morally to be a true leader for his people. Nehemiah was a man of great courage. He was profound in his convictions and intense in his devotion for the cause of God. And in our study of his life, I just want to look at a few things, how he considered the situation around him to glorify God where he was, because this is always going to be the lot of our, our existence. First, notice his position in verse 1. He says, I was in Susa, the citadel. Again, he was the king's cupbearer. We learned that in verse 11. And although he occupied a high position, he had no reason to believe that he had sacrificed his spiritual life before God. And so like Joseph and Daniel and others before him, his character was his only quote-unquote fault. The only thing they could find wrong with him was that he served God. But notice also in verse 2, his, his request, his concerning request. He said, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah was not so far carried away and uh, was not so far carried away by his own promotion and success that he was indifferent to the, 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 the sympathies and cries of other people. You know, people are crazy. Though they are rich and have had their understanding uh, in all these things, many of these people, like Nehemiah in high positions, are dried up for the poor who are God's people and the honor of his name. But those who desire to help in the kingdom of God won't fail to inquire about the real nature of someone's case. They'll, they'll have empathy. They'll have sympathy for people. And so if a person is truly a Christian, he or she will do well to do all they can to take every chance to deny themselves for God and others and do what Jesus said, to take up their cross daily. 
And so it says in 2 Corinthians 5, or it says in 1 John, where the love of the world is, the love of the Father cannot be. But it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, that the love of Christ constrains us. So he's considering this. He's considered his position. He's considered the request. He's, he's surveying the land, but he learns the truth in verse 3, that there's now great trouble and shame, and the walls are still broken down. I mean, this was sad news. It's better to know the facts than to live under a fake reality, to live uh, with your head in the sand, as it were, like an ostrich. The people were suffering from poverty. They were suffering from distress, and the wall of their defense was broken down. They were still reaping the fruits of the rebellion and idolatry from 2 Kings 25. And friends, weakness and suffering must always characterize the people of God. And when the walls of separation are broken down and the gates of praise are burned up by the enemy's fire, a powerless, praiseless Christian is a stench to the name that he or she bears. And Nehemiah knew this. He knew that he needed to get in there by God's call to rally the people, yes, to build the walls, but more so to engage themselves with God once again. And so you see in verse 4 the result of what happened. He says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Men, uh, I think it's something to be said as he goes through here. Nehemiah is, is like Joseph. He's in a high-ranking position, and Joseph went into his chamber to cry when he saw his brothers come before him. Nehemiah cries, presumably, among other people, servants at least, and, and before the king. And we'll notice that uh, in chapter 2 next week, that the king notices that he has a sad face about him. And so he lost it when he heard that things were and how the people were. I mean, how many today bring shame and sin on the name of God among those who aren't Christians because of how they treat things? Paul knew about this holy soul agony when he said in Philippians 3.18, he said, I tell you even weeping that those people are enemies of the cross. I mean, is it possible that we can be baptized into the death and, and resurrection of Christ, yet have hearts so cold and callous towards Him among people that we're never constrained through personal interest to sit down and weep? You know, as a man, sometimes we want to put on that John Wayne face that there's nothing wrong with me. I got this. You got this. Uh, you know, hey, how you doing? You get, well, before COVID, you could give one of those side hugs and give a man hug and that sort of thing. Friends, it's very easy and natural for us to sit down and cry if we really let it be, especially over things that are personally lost. We can't help but feeling it because we're so closely tied to those things and we know things we've lost. I mean, Christ wept over Jerusalem. If, if we had his eyes and his compassion, we'd weep over it too, just as Nehemiah wept over Jerusalem and the people. And so if Nehemiah's heart had not been moved and melted first, he never could have done the work that God had called him to do. I mean, can we possibly be in a fit condition for serving Christ if we have not been able to weep over the things that dishonor his name and grieve his spirit, as Ephesians 4.30 says? And a further evidence that Nehemiah's heart was right with God is seen in the fact that his sorrow moved him to self-denial and prayer. It says he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. If we are so close, if we are so close as we say to God, we will be ready to deny ourselves all that would keep us from doing His will in us and by us. Nehemiah laid aside the luxuries of the palace that he might give himself to prayer. I mean, where else can a trustful, affectionate child go but to his father in the day of hard times and anguish and, you know, even perplexity, to use a bigger word? Their great affliction was not too great for the God of heaven. And so Nehemiah prays, and with a heart melted, and the love of God, and, and, and eyes of kindness, he, he simply just says a prayer. 
And so if we don't have enough compassion to lead us to pray for others when they are hurting, when they are in need, it is time to sit down and weep and fast and pray for ourselves. Now, now let's be honest here. It can be a sin if all you do is pray about something. If God has told you first off in the authoritative Scripture to go and do it, and you're not doing it, well, I'm going to pray about that. No, you go and do it. It's just like a parent when they tell them, go take out the trash. They don't, uh, well, well, Mom, let me sit and ponder the possibilities of that for a minute, whether that's in my favor or not, or it's, whether that increases my odds or it doesn't increase my odds. They're just expected to obey. So prayer over prayer can be a sin, just like it was in Acts 12 when they were praying for Peter to be released from prison. They prayed and prayed and prayed, and Peter knocks on the door, and the little servant girl, Rhoda, runs up to the door and, and says, Peter's here, Peter's here, and they say, no, 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 you just heard things, and, and, and Peter knocks again, and finally they, they say, wow, Peter is here. Prayer is vital. Prayer is good. But when he was considering his situation before all these things, what he knew was is that he had to lay it all down. He had to have compassion. He had to weep. He had to pray because of what was in front of him. And so what we see is that prayer is one of the greatest privileges of our lives. Through prayer, Elijah shut up rain from heaven for three and a half years. Peter was delivered from prison. And having been made in, in, in all these things, we need to know that prayer is vital. So, friend, we're going to look at that prayer now, but we, we, we see that he considered the situation. And you need to consider your situation around you. Take in the news. Filter it through. Make sure you get the right details. Have compassion. And that's especially true in this COVID time. So many of us are strong in our opinions of mask and no mask, vaccines, no vaccines, do this, don't do that. Ha take a chill pill, have some grace, consider the situation before you, but may it lead you to do what our second point is. He considered the situation before him, around him, but secondly, we are to compassionately seek God who's above you. Compassionately seek God above you. You see this in verses 5 to 11. Prayer is one of the greatest privileges we have. And first, you see, as he prays there in verse 4, he wept, he mourned, he fasted. Friends, this was no formal prayer. This was no perfect King James English prayer written out on a manuscript that you read while other people close their eyes. It was the outcome of Nehemiah's soul stirred to its utmost depths. And those who draw near with the lip while their hearts are far off may themselves be satisfied with a prayer which is nothing but a solemn mockery before God, but not for Nehemiah. This was a passionate prayer. He mourned, verse 4, he fasted, and he wept. It was a passionate prayer. And as God loves a cheerful giver, so does God love a wholehearted person given to prayer. The fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James 5, 17 tells us. But he also has knowledge here. Look at verse 5. It was because Nehemiah knew God that he could pray. As he's compassionately seeking the God that's above him, he cries out in verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who has kept covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Look, Nehemiah believed in the greatness of God, his terribleness, his faithfulness, and his mercifulness. And so when we come to God, we must believe that he is, and that as Hebrews eleven six 6 says, he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. To know such a God in such a fashion is to ask much and expect much. Isn't that what Jesus said? Uh, ask anything in my name and it will be given to you? Well, it has a purpose, doesn't it? You have to ask according to his will, according to his kingdom, according to all the things that bring him praise. 
But they, do, but they that don't know God will be strong and do exploits through prayer and try to use prayer like, like Saul did before he sacrificed in an unholy manner before the Lord in 1 Samuel. But notice his emphasis in verse 6. It says, hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night. Now remember, this has been going on for days. This isn't just a five-minute prayer or on commercial breaks or while the kids go to sleep or in his car on his way to, or on his donkey on his way to the palace. This has been a prolonged prayer. This is why Luke 18.1 tells us that the widow continually came and gained her request before God. And Luke tells us in Luke 18.1 that we should always pray and never give up. That's what Jesus taught us. This is the lesson that Jesus teaches us of the parable of the man begging for the loaves from his friend at midnight in Luke 11.8. Hear what he said there. He says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And wasn't it Moses who held up his hand with assistance at times, and Israel prevailed in the battle? And we are told in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing or to pray without stopping. doesn't mean you're always praying formally with your eyes closed, but is your life a manner of prayer? As you consider as God is working around in the midst of sin covered by grace, prayer becomes such more important in our lives. And so we should not be weary in doing good because Galatians tells us in due season we will reap if we don't faint, especially in prayer. But you notice in verses 6 and 7 the confession that he gives here. As he's compassionately seeking God above him, he says in verse 6, But I and my father's house have sinned, and we have dealt very corruptly against you. He's speaking to God. And the sin of dealing falsely of God is a very common and a very grievous one, if we will. And we know that if we pretend to believe God's word and yet live in fear and doubt, we ask, thing, we ask him for things that we don't expect. And this is what James tells us in, in James chapter 4, verse 3, that, that we, when we ask, we are double-minded men, double-minded women. And we make a profession of loyalty to his cause and say, God, I want to follow you wherever you go. I'll never deny you, Peter's famous words. In our heart, though, we are more concerned about our own personal interests than his. So how can we expect to prevail with God in prayer if there's no confession made out of that evil which has made our lives so barren in the past. Friend, confession is good for your soul. We know that as, a, as a, a mantra here in anything. The first step to recovery is confession or admitting your, your guilt or need. That's true. But before God in your relationship with Him, as you seek to restore yourself spiritually, as you seek to rebuild and, and, and go forward spiritually, have you confessed your sins before God? Not just a blanket, oh Lord, you know, I'm sure I sinned sometime yesterday by cracky. I, I just, I know, would you forgive me? But have you specifically gone before God as you're able to remember such things and say, Lord, I'm sorry for getting mad here. I'm sorry for thinking this. I'm sorry for fill in the blank, not having enough faith. Lord, forgive me. And praise God, he will. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us from all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. But spiritual bondage and failure in the Christian life imply that there's sin in the camp, and we have a need for self-scrutiny and confession. Maybe you need to confess something to someone else. James 5 says, confess your sins to one another so that you might be healed. Friend, maybe that's what you need to do, but as Nehemiah poured out his heart before God, he admitted very easily that him and his fathers before him were messed up, and God needed to help them. 
But notice his faith in verses 8 and 9. Look back at verse 8. It says, remember the word. That's a key phrase if you're underlining. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to a place I've chosen to make my name dwell there. Look, faith holds upon the spoken word of God. The prayer is built by faith on the promise of God. A promise of God cannot be overthrown. In turning to the Lord himself, Nehemiah fulfilled the condition of blessing. He said, Lord, remember your word. God, you said it. I believe it. And that settles it. It's a phrase that's out there a lot. And that's true here. This is a beautiful, childlike confidence that honored God and was pleasing in his sight. Because God cannot deny himself when he finds so much of himself involved in such pleading. But Nehemiah goes a step further. Down in verse 10, he says, uh, he says, God, it was by your great power and your strong hand. I mean, the audacity of faith here is astounding. It looks God in the face and says, look, God, there is word. There is a word of your promise. There's a word in redemption. There's evidence of your love. Your strong hand has done it. Lord, you said it. So do this thing for me. Do this thing for us. And so he comes to God. And, and, and he comes to God and he says, we must believe we must believe in these things, and we must be rewarded, Lord, because, Lord, you said it, and he cries out. He's not afraid to say to God, God, you promised it, and I'm, I'm going to grab that promise, not in some Joel Osteen way, not in some rich prosperity, false belief kind of way, but, Lord, your word says it, and I'm going to hold on to that. But notice what he says in verse 11. He says, O oh, Lord, be attentive to the prayer of your servant who desires to fear your name. And then he ends it. That's it. Friend, in our prayers, we shall often ask for things we shouldn't. We'll ask amiss. But if we're not prepared to yield ourselves to God and live for his glory, then everything we do is just spoken empty words that Jesus warned us about, that the Pharisees did. They just spoke words so people could hear them and see them. So there are three types of people who are servants. There's a slave who serves through fear. There's a person who hires who's just there for the job, the wages. And then there's a son who serves out of love. And it is that obedient and devoted son who expects and gets the favor and the fullness of his father, just as the prodigal son did. And it is those who present themselves as a living sacrifice to God that are able to prove, as Romans 12 says, what is good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Friend, listen, those who would prevail with God must give themselves a servant's portion in the servant's place. Nehemiah had to do these things because he knew without them he had nothing. He had to consider the situation around him. He had to compassionately seek God above him because he knew what our big idea was. He knew that there's no damage that sin has done that God's grace, fully complete in Christ, could not restore or rebuild. He walked with great confidence before God because he knew God was able. But what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? I want to remind you that the aim of all this, as we apply this to our lives, the aim of all this, the aim of all Israel's history, was that all the peoples of the earth may know him, that there is no other God, 1 Kings 8.60. And so Israel's story was just one part of God's bigger story for the world. And by God's grace, we too have to play a part in that. Friend, the same God that Nehemiah cried out to is the same God of all time. He hasn't changed. He's not one God in the Old Testament and one God in the New Testament. 
God has called you in whatever way, shape, or form right now to serve Him in a way that may be different than you're used to, may be different than you thought of, but God has called you to do it just as He did Nehemiah. Are you listening? Are you ready? Are you willing to be part of that plan? But if you're a non-Christian here today, this just seems still, I mean, you're talking about a guy who prayed and it it seems so long ago. Well, my non-Christian friend, you won't like God if you meet Him outside of Christ. You won't like God if you don't know Him. I mean, for, for, for my non-Christian friends, a good night's sleep is a beckoning to come to find the peace and rest with God in Christ because you struggle with this. You are like those people Nehemiah was serving under. You, are, you, are, you don't know Christ. You're, you're pagan. You don't know anything about it. But friend, the great news is, is that God has told you that you, like Nehemiah, can cry out to Him and He will hear you. You have sinned. There's nothing in this world you can do to get to heaven, but God sent forth His Son, born under uh, the law, born of a virgin, at just the right time. His name is Jesus. He died for you. He, he lived the life you couldn't live and died the death you should have died. And on that cross, He took the pain, the wrath, the punishment you deserve. He was buried, and He rose again, and He is offering you a chance now to repent, to turn from your sin and believe on Him to be saved. And that was what Nehemiah went to proclaim. Yes, he went to go build the walls up, but his main message was, was exactly what we read just a minute ago, that all the peoples of the earth may know him, that there is no other God. And friend, you're not a Christian. Thank you so much for tuning in. But you need to know that as well. So what does this teach us about being in public? Uh, Nehemiah teaches us that being in public about your faith simply means not hiding what is true, what is the wellspring of your life, and not hiding who you truly are. Nehemiah was willing to stand for God, even if it meant it cost him his high position in the Persian court. But Nehemiah points to Christ as he weeps for God's people, as Christ wept for God's people. And friends, Nehemiah's deep anguish reminds us of Christ's final uh, uh, evening of prayer to the Father in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. However, when Nehemiah risked his life going before the king, and we'll get there next week, to get approval for the rescuing of God's people, Jesus Christ was taken out of the city and lost his life for the salvation of his people. So you need to remember that. Christ is all through these pages. Nehemiah is just a man, and we look to him for certain things, but ultimately his faith is pointing back to the one to come at that point, Christ, now who we look back to. And Nehemiah shows us that we all have different roles to play for one purpose, to bring glory to God wherever, whenever, and with whomever that may be. Nehemiah, though, did not let his work define him, but he let his God define his work and his character. I mean, Christian, have you had a moment of truth like this, a moment you know that will define you? You need to remember that when the need to act outweighs the comfort of your inactivity, you are walking close to God in faith. What is it that God is calling you to do that you know you need to do? And church, let me just say some words to you as we close. Prayer must be a habit and not a last resort for us. Starting on Wednesday, January 6th at 7.30 p.m., it's in our bulletin this week, we're going to be doing a Zoom prayer meeting. We're going to do that every Wednesday night at 7.30. We invite you to join in. You can call in, you can video in, you can do lots of things. But as we start this new year, as we seek to rebuild, restore, and renew what God is doing here at Tower View Baptist Church, we need to make prayer a habit and not a last resort. And prayer must be a passion and not just a passing thought. It must be something that we calendar in our lives. It must be something we take forward to our lives. It must be all those things as they are. But we must acknowledge, as Nehemiah did, of, of God's character, 
We must acknowledge and confess our need and our sin. We must acknowledge that we are humble people, that we can only do what God allows us to. And we must grow out of our brokenness of sin, and we must be confident, as Nehemiah was confident, in God's sufficiency before us. He can do all things. So Christian, as we close, I just want you to remember that. As Nehemiah sets the stage here, there is no damage that sin has done that God's grace can't reach, restore, or rebuild. And you need to consider the situation around you where God has you, but you need to compassionately seek the God that is above you. If you do those two things, you do well in these days to be faithful. Let's pray together, and we will close out as we look forward to our time together. Father, thank you so much. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending forth your Son. Father, as we wade into Nehemiah here and just get our feet wet a little bit today, we pray this, this passage would encourage and exhort people to know you. Father, what is it that you're calling many of our folks to do? Would you lead them by your Spirit to hear that today? But Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Only in Jesus Christ we pray and ask in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, once again, my name is Darren Smith. It's good to have you. Thank you for joining us. If we can help you in any way, we can be reached at 816-368-1330. Call or text or drop us a message or comment below. We'll be glad to connect with you from there. But we are so grateful. This will be posted in our, on our website, towerofukc.com. And again, on behalf of our staff, on behalf of our church, Happy New Year to you. We'd love to help you grow in Christ this year as we seek to grow our faith among family here at Tower View Baptist Church. Guys, we love you. God bless, and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.